follow us on Twitter at VoiceAmericaTRN. Get the lowdown on guests, new shows, and your favorites. That's VoiceAmericaTRN. The following program is being brought to you on the Voice America Variety Channel. For more information about our network and to check our additional show hosts and topics of interest, please visit VoiceAmericaVariety.com. The Voice America Talk Radio Network is the worldwide leader in live Internet talk radio. Visit VoiceAmerica.com. The views and ideas expressed on the following program are strictly those of the host or guests and do not necessarily reflect the views and ideas held by the Voice America Talk Radio Network, its staff, and management. Welcome to P.I.'s Declassified, an inside look at the world of private investigators. Your host is Francie Kaler, a noted private investigator. Francie and her guests take you behind the scenes and into the genuine, sometimes gritty business of investigation. You'll hear stories from the trenches with plenty of surprises. Here's your host, Francie Kaler. Good morning. Our topic this morning, Nebraska Dead Man Walking Exonerated is about Jeremy Sheets. Jeremy Sheets is with me today as my guest. Jeremy was wrongfully convicted for murder in 1997 and spent four years on Nebraska's death row. He became America's 95th exonerated death row inmate. And you, as you might expect, Jeremy is an anti-death penalty advocate. What a surprise. He's a member of Witness to Innocence, a national organization of death row exonerees, and he works with the Coloradans for attorney alternatives to the death penalty in Colorado. He's a member of Witness to Innocence, an organization of death row exonerees leading a campaign to end the death penalty. And Jeremy is joining us today to chronicle the treachery that led to his wrongful conviction, the details of his release, and finally, his great frustration at being a citizen with a history tainted with lies and betrayals. Um, Jeremy, welcome to PIs Declassified. Thank you. Thank you for having me. I'm delighted. Um, you and I met in Colorado at the conference for the private investigators, PPIAC in Colorado, and I was intrigued by your story, and so I really appreciate you taking the time to be on the show today. Well, hopefully I can enlighten some people. <laughs> yeah. Well, first of all, I'm sure people are curious about um, the crime. You, you were convicted. You, you were a resident of Nebraska. And you weren't very old. How old were you when this happened? I was 22. You were 22 when you were convicted? Arrested. When you were arrested. Okay. Yeah. And so tell us a little bit about um, what you were arrested for. Um, I was charged with first-degree murder and use of a weapon to commit a felony. Okay. And it involved um, who – what was the person that was murdered? Um, it was a young girl. Her name was Kenyatta Bush. She was a 17-year-old honor student from Omaha. Um, she had come up missing from high school in 1992. And the, about 10 days later, her body was found in the woods. And the crime went unsolved for four years. Um, after four years, they had had anniversary uh, editions on TV about her disappearance and stuff. And mm-hmm. it was after one of these anniversary specials, uh, an ex-friend of mine, Adam Barnett, 
had confessed to a group of people that he had committed the crime. Of course, they turned him into the police, uh, and they agreed to wear a wire, and they confronted Adam a second time. And again, he said that he had committed the crime. And so at this time, the police arrested him. When they arrested him, they started threatening him with the death penalty because they wanted to know the details of what happened to this young girl. Mm-hmm. And uh, at this time, he had recanted. He said he didn't know anything about it. And they kept threatening him with the death penalty. And so he started saying that I did it uh, to try and get out of the situation. And that's how I became involved. Um, he oh. made. Okay, he didn't ahead. say that you did it together. Correct. I see. Okay. So, um, so did he have details? I mean, was it, was he specific about his involvement originally? No, his first statement, he said that I told him about it at a party and he kept changing his statements. Uh, he ended up making three different statements to the police. Uh, and the details became more and more as the statements went on. Mm-hmm. Um, in his first statement, or in his second statement, he said that um, we had stopped. We were driving around, and we stopped and asked this girl if she wanted to smoke some pot. And she said yes. She got in the car. We drove around. We went to a party. Um, then we went to a park, and we were walking along a path, and he said he was walking behind us, and I just freaked out and started stabbing this girl about 17 times in the chest. Wow. And, of course... The police knew that none of this was true. Um, she wasn't stabbed in the chest. She was an honor student. She wasn't just going to ditch school to go smoke pot with a couple guys she didn't know. Mm-hmm. Um, so, again, you know, they started threatening him with the death penalty. So the evidence didn't match his statement to begin with? Correct. Okay. Correct. And then what happened next? Uh, well, then he made a third statement, and this time he said that um, this is where he started becoming more involved himself, but he still put everything off on me. Mm -hmm. Uh, He said that we kidnapped the girl from high school, shoved her in the backseat of a Camaro, uh, drove to a park, drug her half a mile through the park. He said that I beat her until she was unconscious, raped her, stabbed her in the chest 10 times, drug her a half a mile through the park, back to the car, put her in the trunk of the car, drove around and dumped her body in the woods. And at this point, the the police, I don't think that, I mean, the evidence still didn't match up, but I think Mm -hmm. that they thought that he would come to tell the truth at a trial or something, and they thought that they had enough evidence to arrest me. So I was in the military at the time. I'd been in the Navy for 10 months, and I was actually stationed in Brunswick, Maine. And so they came up there to uh, confront me and arrest me. Wow. Amazing. What a shock. Yeah, it was it was pretty crazy. Um, I was at work when they came up there. I was actually working as a radio man. And I was on base working, and I got a really strange phone call, and it was from Ad- Adam. And, and had, you, had you been in contact with him at all? Not for um, about a year and a half or so. Um, We had a strained friendship at this point. It was over a girl. Um, He was dating a girl named Chrissy, and they had broken up. And 
I'd slept with her a couple times. So then um, they ended up getting back together, and she told him about it, and he just hated my guts after that. Did he? Did the motive for what happened to, the, to Kenyatta Bush ever come out? Um, yeah, he started saying that it was because she was a black girl and we were skinheads or something, uh, Nazis, and um, just hated hated that. So that was his reasoning. Were you a skinhead? <clears throat> no. No, I've never hung around those people. I've never believed in um, anything like that. I've had African-American friends my whole life. And and um, was he, he was one? Um, at one point, he was hanging around some skinheads. Um, mm-hmm. That kind of went towards the end of our friendship, and I don't really know what happened with that. I don't know if he joined them or hung out with them all the time or, or anything. As far as I know, he, he did not, but I really couldn't tell you for sure. And did you guys go to school together? No. How did, um, how did you meet? Uh, we just met through mutual friends that lived in the neighborhood. Oh, I see. Okay. And did before you were charged with this crime, did you know who Kenyatta Bush was? No, I had no idea. Um, even when she was in the newspaper when the crime originally occurred, I wasn't aware because I was 18, just graduated high school. I didn't read the paper or watch the news. I wasn't interested in those things at that time. Mm-hmm. So I didn't okay. even know the crime had occurred. Okay. So then they came and they came and talked to you um, in New Brunswick, and then what happened? Yeah, um, it was really weird. They they asked me if I knew Kenyatta Bush, and I said no. And uh, I thought they were, I don't know, maybe asking me for help, like identifying somebody, or you know, maybe it was an old acquaintance I had known. So I asked them if they had a photograph of the person that I might recognize. Mm-hmm. And they said yes. They showed me a photograph of this young girl. And as soon as I said I had no idea who this person was, they put the handcuffs on me and arrested me for first-degree murder. Okay. Now, did they mention Adam's name at that point? No. So you were completely blindsided? Yeah, completely. I had no idea what was happening. Um, and they held me in Maine for 10 days. Um, I didn't have any contact with anybody. I didn't have any phone calls. I didn't have any attorney phone calls or anything. Um, I had no idea what was happening to me at all. Um, did they read you your rights? Did, yes, they, did they, did. they read you your rights? Yes, they did read me my rights. Okay. Okay, go ahead. I'm sorry. Um, you know, and I, after 10 days, I had an extradition hearing, and I didn't want to fight it. Uh, I knew that I hadn't killed anybody, so... I was like, you know, I'll go back to Oman, face whatever there is to face. Um, and I still didn't really know what was, understand what was happening because the attorney that I had for the extradition hearing didn't know anything either. <clears throat> so mm-hmm. uh, finally they came to fly me back to Omaha, Nebraska, and they put me on a commercial airliner. They had waited until all the passengers were on the plane. They handcuffed me to my waist and shackled me and marched me down this airplane to the back of the airplane. And uh, it was pretty hard to see because people started grabbing their kids and their purses and, you know, looking at me all crazy. And um, that was really hard to go through. And I had to do mm-hmm. it twice because there was a layover in Chicago. Um, oh, wow. 
And then when I got to Omaha, Nebraska, I was the first one off the plane, uh, and it was crazy. There was cameras and flashing lights everywhere and, and people yelling stuff at me, and uh, I really had no idea what what was going on, why why all this attention was on me and stuff. It was crazy. It was like a paparazzi episode. Hmm. Um, now, had you had any contact with your family at all during that 10 days? No. Uh-uh. Uh, no news, no newspaper, nothing. I didn't have any any clue. Uh, and wow. even when I got to Omaha, I still didn't know because they put me in a holding cell for another four days with absolutely zero contact. Uh, the guards wouldn't talk to me or anything. Um, and I, on the fifth day, they came and took me to the courthouse. Mm-hmm. And that's kind of where I got just overwhelming feeling. of It was just so crazy because uh, the courtroom was just packed with people and the media was there and just tons of um, cops were there and I had no idea what was going on when I walked into the courtroom just packed full of people and um, this guy walked up to me and said he was going to be my attorney and at that time I didn't even know who he was or or anything I found out later my mom had put up a second mortgage on her house and had hired this guy and you know, we pled not guilty, and I went to a regular jail after that. And when I got mm-hmm. to jail, that's really where I found out what was going on because the inmates had been reading the newspaper and watching the news, and they're the ones that told me everything. Wow. Um, and they're the one- so they didn't – I'm sorry. They didn't bring Adam to court when you, they took you to court? Not that time. And two months later, I was supposed to have an evidentiary hearing, and this is where they were supposed to bring in Adam Barnett to say he was going to testify against me at trial. Um, but at this point, Adam was telling everybody that would listen that we were innocent. And, I mean, his cellmates, the guards, his friends, his family, his his mom, his girlfriend. Uh, and they knew that, so they didn't want to bring him in and have him say I was innocent at this hearing. Mm-hmm. So instead they just brought a cop in, and the cop was like, yeah, we have someone that's going to testify against Jeremy Sheets. And that was enough to hold me over for a trial. And as soon as they announced on the TV that they were going to hold me for trial, Adam hung himself in the jail. Right then. Right then, yeah. Um, there's been a lot of speculation that that the cops killed him. But, I mean, there's there's no proof of that. I mean, I, I believe that, that he hung himself. Hmm. Um, and... You know, I remember when I got back to the jail, they put me on suicide watch, and they had told me what had happened. You know, hang on to that a second, Jeremy, because we need to take a really quick break because I don't, I want to lose the continuity of this. Jeremy and I'll be right back in a couple moments. Talk, talk, talk. That's all we do is talk. If you'd like to talk, call us toll-free right now at 1-866-472-5787. 1-866-472-5787. That's it. VoiceAmerica.com. Need to hire a private investigator? 
ask for their professional association affiliations. When an investigator asks Francie Kaler about associations, she says to first join a state trade association. Francie belongs to the California Association of Licensed Investigators, or CALI. It's the largest association of its kind in the world. CALI's main focus is networking, training, and legislative advocacy. If you need a detective in California, contact CALI at cali-pi.org or call 1-800-350-CALI. For a national association, Francie's choice is the National Council of Investigation and Security Services, or NCISS. For over 35 years, the council's primary mission has been to represent its members before the United States Congress and governmental agencies. Find the council at NCISS.org or call 1-800-445-8408. NCISS and Cali are great places to look for a qualified private investigator. Tell them you heard it from Francie on PI's Declassified. Trying to juggle the need for comprehensive data on a tight budget, Merlin's Investigators Package was created especially for investigative and law enforcement professionals. With the Investigators Package, you'll enjoy tremendous savings over Merlin's pay-per-search pricing. For less than $100 per month, you can access the premium databases most frequently used by investigative professionals. Merlin's Investigators Package, simply the best, most affordable option for research and investigation. To learn more, call 800-367-6646 or email sales at merlindata.com. Free trials are available. If you hear a dog barking or an angel singing, then you know that you are listening to Waking Up in America. Heard every Wednesday at 3 Pacific Time, Valerie Kirkard and all of her friends will bring you powerful and humorous discussions that raise thoughts and give you insight on how to live your life to its fullest potential. Adventure is always a must on Waking Up in America with Valerie Kirkard every Wednesday at 3 Pacific. Ask the experts. Call toll-free right now, 1-866-472-5787. Hello? And ask our all-star team to answer your question. That's 1-866-472-5787. Thank you for calling. VoiceAmerica.com. You're listening to P.I.'s Declassified with Francie Kaler. You can call into the program. We'll take questions and comments at 1-866-472-5788. That's 1-866-472-5788. You can also email your question to Francie. Send it to francie at pisdeclassified.com. Now, here's Francie Kaler. Metro exoneree Jeremy Sheets is here with me today to share his experiences of being convicted for a crime he didn't commit. Jeremy, you were, I interrupted you. You were just, we were talking about Adam suicide and so forth. Go ahead with what you were saying. And once I got back to the jail and they told me about it uh, and they had me on suicide watch, uh, I just broke down crying. Uh, you know, it was totally overwhelming. I was being charged with the murder of someone I didn't know. My old friend had just killed himself. I was really overwhelmed. And I remember a guard getting mad at me for crying. And she was like, why are you crying? And she started yelling at me. She's like, you're going to go home and, um, and all this stuff. And, you know, I, I wish she would have been right, but she wasn't. Um, they didn't let me go home. And four months later after that, they took me to trial. And the only evidence they had against me was this last statement that he had made. And, and the judge allowed that to be in, entered into evidence. 
yeah, even though uh, we didn't have the right to cross-examine him or anything like that, um, and he really didn't say that he was part of the crime, um, and he just said that he would, like, watch me do it all. So um, the judge said it didn't matter. He could put it in. And the judge was really uh, crooked also because, you know, he uh, yelled at my attorney for doing things properly in front of the jury and everybody. And then behind closed doors, he would apologize to my attorney, but he never made it right in front of the jury. Um, But they knew that the crime did not fit that statement. So what they did was they withheld evidence and they hid evidence and made up evidence to make the crime fit because somebody had to go down. How did you, how did your attorney handle that? Um, you know, he was really overwhelmed. It wasn't that he was a, a bad attorney. It was just that he thought it was an open and shut case. Uh huh. You know, I mean, there was no evidence against me. It was a statement by somebody that had confessed and recanted, you know, what, what was their to do with that. Um, and Jeremy, you said, you told me on the break that uh, Adam had left a note. Do you know what the note said? No, I don't. Um, they've never let it in the um, court or let me read it or anything. Huh. I would think that would be actually part of your discovery. <laughs> You'd think. Huh? <laughs> <laughs> okay, um, so, all right, so you went to trial and... How long did your trial last? Um, I think it was about four days. Um, it was really interesting because they didn't have any evidence against me, so they just tried to make me look like a bad person. Mm-hmm. You know, so how uh, did they try to do that? Uh, well, I'm an artist, so I have all kinds of drawings um, from angels to demons, uh, all kinds of stuff. And so when they raided my house, they just took a couple of the bad-looking drawings and brought him in and say, hey, look, he's a devil worshiper, he's a Nazi, and stuff like that. Um, one of the pictures that they said I was a Nazi was because I drew a picture of the Red Skull from Captain America. Hmm. Um, but they didn't take any of the good pictures I had. Right. Um, then they withheld evidence. Uh, the autopsy report was a huge point in our case. Because it shows that what happened to that girl is not what Adam Barnett said. And they blocked us from putting that into evidence, and the judge was okay with that. Really? Yeah, because um, the autopsy report shows that she was not beaten, she was not raped, uh, she did not die of 10 stab wounds to the chest. What did she die of? She died of a severely cut throat. Really? That's quite a bit of difference. Yeah, and um, the medical examiner did testify, um, and he said that that was all in the eye of the beholder and that it was the same thing. Oh, really? Okay. Right. <laughs> all right, that uh, makes a lot of sense. Okay, yeah. so then, so so after four days in trial, you're convicted. How long did it take yeah. the jury to come back with the uh, verdict? I don't really remember. Uh, I think it was about four hours. Really? Same day then? You're saying same day? Um, no, because it was towards the end of the day when they left, so then it was overnight, and they came back the next day. Um, and there were some things weird that happened with the jury when they went home, too. One lady was pregnant, and she was from California, 
And she said that the cops had showed up that night at her house threatening to arrest her and take her back to California on a traffic ticket. And uh, she said, well, I'm involved in this Jeremy Sheets case. And they said, okay, well, we'll work something out. Really? And, That's weird. Yeah, yeah. And the judge was okay with that. Um, another another guy said that he had talked to a law professor about my case over, over the night. And it was the same law professor that had said, to the media that I was guilty uh, the day that I was arrested, um, and the judge was okay with that. And so that would be considered misconduct by the jury, but by the jury, right? A jury member, yeah. Right. Uh, so the judge was really okay with anything as long as they convicted me. So uh, what so was your reaction me. when you heard that verdict? Uh, I was I was devastated and. And the reaction from the crowd, I mean, you got to understand the courtroom was packed. They brought in extra chairs to seat people in the community, and the courtroom was completely packed. And when they said guilty, the crowd jumped up and cheered. And I was just Hmm. devastated. I was like, how can this possibly be? You know, I just proved I was innocent. You know, I just could not understand how this was happening to me. And, um... I just, I was just completely overwhelmed. It felt like a horrible dream. Um, and when I went back to my cell, I mean, I contemplated suicide also. I mean, I was just, you know, wow. I mean, there's nothing you can do about it. There's no way you can fight it. There's no, it's not something physical standing in front of you that you can fight and have a chance at. I mean, this is a, a machine that just rolled over you, you know. It felt pretty hopeless, huh? Yeah, very hopeless. Um, so what happened then? Did you get removed right away to death row? No, it was. Uh, it took another six months for my sentencing, and I went in front of a three-judge panel. And the three-judge panel is supposed to, if you get death, it's supposed to be a unanimous decision. And they actually voted two to one. One guy said I deserve life. The other two said death. And even though it was not a unanimous decision, they still sent me directly to death row that day. Okay. And uh, I went directly to death row, and uh, I was, I mean, it was definitely horrifying. I was so scared when I got there, Um, not just to the prison, but, I mean, death row, these people are going to kill me. Mm -hmm. And and they knew that I was innocent, and, you know, I just couldn't believe it. And um, about a month or two after I had gotten there, they had killed they had executed another man and moved me down to his cell. His name was Robert Williams. And when they moved me down to his cell, it felt like I was the next person in line. And right. that, yeah. it really, really set in. These people aren't messing around. They're really going to kill you. What is death row like? What's an average day on death row? Um, well, it's very depressing. I mean, there's no hope there. There's, there's just nothing for you. Every day is the same as yesterday. There's no hope for tomorrow. It's it's horrifying. You're scared all the time. You know, I I didn't know. Um, I mean, you're living up there. They say you're the, you're the worst of the worst, and you're with the worst of the worst. Mm-hmm. Yeah. So you know, what happens if you come in contact with this other worst of the worst person? Are they going to kill you? You know, the guards want to kill you. The system wants to kill you. Everyone, it just seems like everyone wants to kill you. 
it's horrifying. It's depressing. You hear people crying at night. You're crying at night. You know, I would I would roll over to put my arm around my wife and fall off my bunk, or I'd slam my fingers into the wall. Yeah, you know, I would pray to God all the time, not just at night, but all day. That you know, as as asking God, why is this happening to me? You know, and I'd beg Him to forgive me for every little thing I've ever done my whole life. And so, uh, and, I, and there's not there's not very many people on the Nebraska death row, right? No, at that time there was ten. Ten. Um, okay. Mm-hmm. And ours was a little different. I mean, it wasn't the straight 23-hour lockdown that most death rows have. Uh, ours was a little different. We um, did have contact. We we ate our meals together. Um, we had yard time together, and we went to the law library. And the law library is very important because you, you had to study law and work on your appeal. Right, right. So did you get a, an attorney assigned to you to do an appeal? No, it was the same attorney that that um, did my trial, and um, you know he did it for free. Um, you know, I I think it's because he totally believed in me, totally believed I was innocent. Mm-hmm. Um, so he and what, what was his name, Jeremy? J. William Gallup. J. William Gallup. Okay. Yeah. And um, yeah, I mean. It, and everyone was like, "Oh, you know, you got a great case. You know, you're you're probably the only person that's ever going to get off of here." But you don't you don't realize that way. You're sitting there waiting to die. You know. Yeah, I'm sure it doesn't feel that way. Right, and you know, your your friends quit talking to you and family. I mean, I did have some support um, from family and some friends, but other people just they're afraid or they think you're guilty. Um, it was just horrifying. My wife ended up eventually um, falling off. It wasn't because she thought I was guilty. She always believed I was innocent. She just didn't ever think I was going to come home. Yeah, right. Um, All right, let's 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 take another break, Jeremy. More on okay. Jeremy's experience in the justice system and on death row in just a second. The Internet's number one talk station. Number one talk station. VoiceAmerica.com Need to hire a private investigator? Ask for their professional association affiliations. When an investigator asks Francie Kaler about associations, she says to first join a state trade association. Francie belongs to the California Association of Licensed Investigators, or CALI. It's the largest association of its kind in the world. CALI's main focus is networking, training, and legislative advocacy. If you need a detective in California, contact CALI at cali-pi.org or call 1-800-350-CALI. For a national association, Francie's choice is the National Council of Investigation and Security Services, or NCISS. For over 35 years, the council's primary mission has been to represent its members before the United States Congress and governmental agencies. Find the council at NCISS.org or call 1-800-445-8408. NCISS and Cali are great places to look for a qualified private investigator. Tell them you heard it from Francie on P.I.'s Declassified. 
a heavy caseload, and a lack of resources. Sound familiar? Merlin's Locate Services team can help. After 30 years in the investigative business, Merlin knows a few things about the industry. Our team of expert skip tracers delivers a host of skip tracing, public record research, place of employment, and bank asset services to investigative and collection professionals. Competitive tiered pricing is available, and all results are 100% guaranteed. To learn more or to inquire about other professional skip trace services, log on to MerlinData.com or call 800-367-6646. IRB Search is simply the best online data provider for locating people, businesses, and assets. IRB Search gives you strength in numbers. With one click, you can access billions of records. Even with partial information on your subject, IRB Search instantly returns current and past addresses, phone numbers, and more. Call IRB Search today at 1-800-447-2112 to sign up. Mention PIs Declassified and you'll receive a two-week trial of 100 free searches to get started. Call 1-800-447-2112 to find out why IRB Search is simply the best. News, opinion, your voice counts. Call toll-free 1-866-472-5787, 1-866-472-5787, voiceamerica.com. You're listening to P.I.'s Declassified with Francie Kaler. You can call into the program. We'll take questions and comments at 1-866-472-5788. That's 1-866-472-5788. You can also email your question to Francie. Send it to francie at pisdeclassified.com. Now, here's Francie Kaler. My guest today, Jeremy Sheets, is sharing his harrowing experience of being convicted of a capital crime and serving four ugly years on death row. Jeremy, you were just talking about your uh, your attorney that that took you through trial. Unfortunately, you were convicted, took on your appeal, um, what we call pro bono for free. And what happened then? Um, well, it took four years for the opinion to come out, and the average is six months. Okay. Um, we don't know why it took four years. He would often write them and ask them if they were ever going to put out an opinion. Um, one time I remember he even said, um, you guys are taking longer to put out this opinion than Tulsky took to write War and Peace. <laughs> okay. <laughs> uh, he never did get any responses. So uh, I was pretty scared. You know, I um really depressed. I even read that book, uh, The Final Exit, just to see which way was the best way to kill myself Mm -hmm. it was really a hard thing to go through um you know and other the other inmates in general population anytime they saw you they would make buzzing noises like the electric chair and um Mm. you know it was just uh and they'd yell stuff at you all the time and it was just a horrible horrible experience um eventually okay go go ahead. ahead go ahead um, but eventually, you know, I, I did win my appeal. Um, uh, one thing I wanted to mention is the uh, Adam Barnett's mother visited me every Sunday for those four years. That was um, great. So those are some of the things that kept me going is, you know, the close family support and people like her totally believed I was innocent and just showing that support. 
Um, and then eventually I, they came out with the decision and I won my appeal. They said that I had the constitutional right to confront my accuser and yes. that that statement was not reliable so that they had to give me a new trial without that statement. And I didn't get released that day. I had to wait because the state had the opportunity to um, appeal that decision to the U.S. Supreme Court. Mm-hmm. And the U.S. Supreme Court didn't even review it. They just, after a couple months, they kicked it back down and said Nebraska ruled correctly. Um, and that's the day they had dismissed charges. It was either that or take me back to trial. And they didn't have anything to take me to trial on. So they dismissed charges. And uh, that's the day I was released. And it was really weird how they released me. When you get exonerated from death row, they're just done with you. It's not like an inmate getting paroled. You know, the parolees, they get um, documents so that they can get ID. They get a bus ticket. They get money. Uh, I didn't get anything. They just came up and uh, to my cell, and they said, are you ready to go? And I was like, yes. So um, now, so let me back. Let me back you up a second. Okay. So, when you first got the the word, how how did it come about that you got the word that uh, Nebraska Supreme Court had granted your appeal? Uh, my attorney called me. He called you, and you were able yeah. to talk to him on the phone. Yeah. And you do that. How do you? How does that happen? Do they call the warden, and the warden puts you together? Is it a social worker? Um, no, actually, um, they call the prison, and I'm not really sure how that works, but then the guards come and tell you, hey, call your attorney. Okay. All right. Um, so so then you you knew that the appeal, uh, that the state had overturned the case, and yes. then it was appealed to the U.S. Supreme Court. Yes. And then how, what were you doing when you heard that the U.S. Supreme Court didn't support uh going forward with the case. What was I doing? Uh, I was just... Yeah. How did you hear? Again from a call? Yes. Yes. Again from a call. You know, I was... Didn't really have any hope. I was just going through the same routine over and over. And, you know, you don't... You can't trust the system. They just are the ones that tried to kill you. I'm thinking you must have not been able to believe that it was really true. Yeah, it was definitely surreal. Um... Because I thought I was dead. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. You know, I thought the electric chair was going to get me for sure, and it was it was just as surreal being released as it was when it happened. And when did you have when they came to get you to tell you you were being released? Did you know it was coming? Yeah, for about um, twenty minutes. Twenty minutes. <laughs> twenty minutes, and you're escorted out of the prison, and you're on your own. Yeah, yeah, and um, it, it was weird. The warden came and got me, and he walked me to the this long hallway, and he asked me, um, or he said, uh, there's the door. There's some people out there waiting for you. There you go, and um, I didn't get anything, and I said, okay, and I walked through the door, and, of course, you know, all the cameras and stuff were there again, and people were yelling stuff at me, and... Um, out of the crowd, my stepdad and my uncle came through, and they grabbed me, and they threw me in a minivan, and we sped away. <laughs> yeah, yeah. And um, and we probably should say you have not received anything from the state 
whatsoever monetarily for this right. uh, prosecutorial misconduct. Yeah, I've sued them. Um, they said that they were acting within their official capacity and were completely immune. Um, I've asked them to remove it from my record um, because I can't get a job or an apartment or anything with a background check. Um, mm-hmm. They said that it had not affected my life enough. Oh, yeah? Really? I yeah, bet you didn't a, agree with that, huh? <laughs> right, right. I, I couldn't believe that, that they had the courage to say that to my face. Wow. Um, so, yeah, really, I've, I've never gotten anything from them. Uh, they refused to open the case again. Um, they continue to say that they have the right guy, and even though there's no evidence against me, and, and the statement was completely proved to be false. Mm-hmm. Uh, there's even DNA found. There was a hair found under the girl's fingernails, and they refused to do any type of testing um, to see if it belongs to her or any of the original suspects or anything. Um, all they did was look at it under a microscope and see to see if it belonged to a white person or not. And do you know whether it belonged to a white person? Um, they said no, it does not. Really? Okay. It's, it's just it, it's amazing, and I um, I can't imagine, just can't imagine Jeremy going through that, going through what you've been through. And I know you've had a really tough time. Since you got out, which was 2001, correct? Yes, June 12th. June 12th, 2001. A difficult time because you're still shown as a convicted felon. Um, well, it, it says dismissed, um, but any time you do a background check, it comes up. Um, and people just, their reactions to it are just so crazy, you know. They're like, think I just escaped death row or something. I'm out here trying to get a job. <laughs> mm-hmm. Yeah. You know. Well, so let me just hard. Let, very hard. Let me just give some stats, which I find kind of interesting that we talked about um, on the break. Uh, since 1976, there have been 1,273 executions in the United States. Um, out of that number, there's been now. The most recent figure, Jeremy, uh, you gave me is 130. There's been 139 exonerations. Yes. You were number 95 of those exonerations. Correct. And, however, the interesting part about it, now, of course, any life is important, but the interesting part about those stats is between 2000 and 2007, which are the most recent stats that are posted, uh, there's been about five exonerations per year, uh, so about 35 exonerations just from 2000-2007. So, and and there have been already in this year, 2011, 39 executions. Last year there were 46. Yeah, and, it's unbelievable. Yeah, it's a lot. Um, now. As far as uh, death row population, um, there's a there's a difference between the number of states that have that have death row. I think it's 34 currently. States have death uh, death rows or capital crimes. Um, 3,200, actually 3,251 people are on death row. Out of that, three. 
5,251. 721 of them are in California. The top five states for a death row population are California, Florida, Texas, Alabama, and Pennsylvania. Uh, and actually, you were talking about to me about going to Texas, and there was a demonstration in Huntsville, Texas, recently with a group of exonerees. And in Texas, they've actually executed 476 since 1976. Um, so, and 12, I believe, this year. Yeah, and it's it's unbelievable. The biggest thing, too, is a lot of people are like, well, DNA, DNA, DNA. And DNA is in such a small percentage of cases. Mm-hmm. Uh, it's almost not even worth mentioning. These people are being released because cops lie, prosecutors lie, they make up evidence, they hide evidence, they know that people are innocent and they're trying to kill them anyways. That's why these people are being released. And and if you know that the system is flawed and the people controlling the system are flawed and they're lying and they're knowingly killing innocent people, then how can you continue to support the system? I just cannot fathom that. Mm-hmm. Yeah, in fact, um, I, I, I'm going to quote you, Jeremy, um, because you've said you're putting the power of life and death in the hands of someone that does not care about innocence, only conviction rates, and then giving them complete immunity when they knowingly send an innocent person to death row. That's insanity. Yeah, absolutely. It is insanity. And I can't believe that as leaders of the free world, and we're telling other countries how to live, uh, and I swear to protect this country with my life, that this is how we're treating our citizens. It's it's not right. Okay, we're going to take another break. Stay tuned for more from Jeremy Sheets. We'll be right back. Opinion. Your voice counts. Call toll-free 1-866-472-5787. 1-866-472-5787. VoiceAmerica.com. Need to hire a private investigator? Ask for their professional association affiliations. When an investigator asks Francie Kaler about associations, she says to first join a state trade association. Francie belongs to the California Association of Licensed Investigators, or CALI. It's the largest association of its kind in the world. CALI's main focus is networking, training, and legislative advocacy. If you need a detective in California, contact CALI at cali-pi.org or call 1-800-350-CALI. For a national association, Francie's choice is the National Council of Investigation and Security Services, or NCISS. For over 35 years, the council's primary mission has been to represent its members before the United States Congress and governmental agencies. Find the council at NCISS.org or call 1-800-445-8408. NCISS and Cali are great places to look for a qualified private investigator. Tell them you heard it from Francie on PI's Declassified. A heavy caseload and a lack of resources. Sound familiar? Merlin's Locate Services team can help. After 30 years in the investigative business, Merlin knows a few things about the industry. Our team of expert skip tracers delivers a host of skip tracing, public record research, place of employment, and bank asset services to investigative and collection professionals. Competitive tiered pricing is available, and all results are 100% guaranteed. To learn more or to inquire about other professional skip trace services, log on to MerlinData.com or call 800-367-6646. 
Trying to juggle the need for comprehensive data on a tight budget, Merlin's Investigators Package was created especially for investigative and law enforcement professionals. With the Investigators Package, you'll enjoy tremendous savings over Merlin's pay-per-search pricing. For less than $100 per month, you can access the premium databases most frequently used by investigative professionals. Merlin's Investigators Package, simply the best, most affordable option for research and investigation. To learn more, call 800-367-6646 or email sales at merlindata.com. Free trials are available. Streaming live, the leader in Internet talk radio, voiceamerica.com. You're listening to P.I.'s Declassified with Francie Kaler. You can call into the program. We'll take questions and comments at 1-866-472-5788. That's 1-866-472-5788. You can also email your question to Francie. Send it to francie at pisdeclassified.com. Now, here's Francie Kaler. Jeremy Sheets has been telling his personal story, a story of an experience that none of us would ever want to have, being on death row. And Jeremy, you just mentioned um, prosecutorial misconduct. There is actually a group, uh, I just got word on this, called the um, Veritas Initiative, and it's in conjunction with the Innocence Project and Voices of Innocence. And they're going to be conducting a nationwide tour. It's called Prosecutorial Oversight, a National Dialogue in the Wake of Koenig versus Thompson to explore policy reforms to prevent prosecutorial misconduct. And it's the tour. It's going to stop in Arizona, California, Louisiana, New York, Pennsylvania, and Texas. And it's going to bring together participants from all aspects of the criminal justice system including legal ethics professors, members of the bar disciplinary committees, uh, prosecutors, judges, and then they're going to re- uh, prepare a report on their findings. So there's some pretty high-profile people like Barry Sheck, for example. Of Everybody knows uh, Barry Sheck of the Cardoza Law School. Uh, Kathleen Rodolfi, or we call her Cookie Rodolfi, she's a professor at Santa Clara University School of Law and the executive director of the Northern, Northern California Innocence Project. So it's pretty interesting. And um, so it will be um, – also there's something called uh, – that's out, if anybody's listening that might be interested, Preventable, Area, Preventable Error, a report on prosecutorial misconduct in California, 1997 to – to 2009, and there's also something um, that's very interesting called Smart on Crime, and this is on the Death Penalty Information Center uh, website, if you want to Google Death Penalty Information Center. It's called Smart on Crime, Considering the Death Penalty in the in a Time of Economic Crisis, and this is actually a national poll of police chiefs. Um, that puts capital punishment at the bottom of law enforcement priorities. And so that's a, that's an interesting report as well. Mm-hmm. We're, you know, one of the few countries, the U.S. is one of the few countries that actually has the death penalty still. Uh, we're in, the uh, United States is in a great list that includes um, Iraq and Kuwait 
in Vietnam and Thailand and Botswana, Nigeria, India, Japan, Uganda. Um, so there's there's not many countries that actually have the death have capital punishment, and uh, those are the ones that we're on the same page with, evidently. So, Jeremy, you've had an amazing experience. Do you have any last thoughts you would have for our listeners? Yeah, I would just um, ask people to learn as much as they can about it. Talk about it. Talk about it with your friends. I know it's a taboo subject, but educate yourselves. Talk about it and and realize what we're doing here. We're killing innocent civilians. It could be you. And, mm-hmm. and one of my favorite quotes is, if we could truly feel the pain would be so great, we would end all of the suffering. Well, you know, I mean, you, you can certainly, your heart can go out to somebody who's lost a family member um, through being murdered. And and if they're watching, you know, they you, you get notified that your child has been murdered or, or somebody. And so you're going through the trial. Can you imagine how hard it would be for the victims or the family members of the victim to be sitting through watching all of this too? I mean, you have to, you kind of have to weigh both sides. Oh, absolutely. And I think about Kenyatta Bush's family all the time. Honestly, I pray for them. You know, I have uh, four children of my own, and I can't imagine something like that happening to them. Mm-hmm. You know, it's got to be horrendous. Yeah, it's got to be horrendous. And, of course, yeah, <laughs> you know, as you probably are more aware than most people, you know, just because somebody's been convicted, it's not over. Right, so, yeah, and, you know, it drags the family, the victim's family through it. Anytime something happens, you know, they they drag the victim's family through it. They bug the victim's family. They try and put them on the TV. You know, the, you know, the death penalty usually draws out several years, so there's no closure for them. You know, then they have to go through the whole execution process, and uh, several victim's family members that have been through that process are actually horrified by it in the end. And they say there's no closure. You know, well, um, yeah. And in your case, they they went through it for four years. And, of course, they're still going through it. They're not over, you know, the poor family of Kenyatta Bush is not over this at all, I'm sure. But, you know, there's some families that are going through the same thing while somebody's been on, on death row for 30 years. Yeah, um, yeah. Some of the people in California have been on the on death row for oh, 30 years or more. And, right. it, and, and every time and a new attorney gets to work on the case and it all comes up again, it's it's very, very, very difficult on the family. Yeah, and you know, honestly, I don't believe with life without parole either because that's a slow death sentence itself. But there should be something else. Yeah. What would you, what would it be? Um, well, you know, they can give life in prison uh, with a possibility of parole. It could be maybe something where the victim's family has a say-so or the community has a say-so instead of just leaving it up to some four, four or five people on a board. Um, mm-hmm. You know, I'm not really sure what the answer is. Somebody smarter than me is going to have to come up with that. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Well, I... I certainly appreciate you being on the show, Jeremy. You have a, a powerful story. Um, you know, it's it, I can't imagine. I just can't imagine how tough it's been on you. 
um, probably as tough being out as it was being in, in a lot of respects. Yeah, in some respects, um, you know, I definitely have severe PTSD. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, I have to take medication. You know, it's hard. It's hard. You know, I have been able to get some jobs, but it's hard for me to maintain the job um, because I get weirded out. You know, it's um, the hardest thing for me was, um, you know, out here, if somebody talks trash to you, you can't just hit them. Yeah. You know, yeah. You know. Right, you can't do that in prison, can you? (laughs) Right. It's easy to turn into the animal. It's hard to turn it it off. um, I'm sure that's true. You know, I I have it tattooed on my back. It says, Death Row Survivor with a cross. Oh, good. And, um, you know, just to remind me that it's behind me, and my best revenge is to live a good life. Very good. Well, thanks again. I just want to mention just a couple of things. Um, My... Spotlight sponsor for today is Merlin Information Center, uh, or Merlin Information Services. Merlin is ce- celebrating its 20th anniversary in business. I was, it was founded by Mike Dorries, and it's a leading provider of data services to uh, the investigative industries. Thank you, Mike and Merlin, for your years of service. If you'd like to learn more about Merlin, go to www.merlindata.com, M-E-R-L-I-N-D-A-T-A.com. Okay, the next, my guests in the next upcoming few weeks are private investigators Jennifer Magnahay, David Sullivan, and Rob Dick, and Joey Pescatelli, an amazing case about a man who represented himself and whom, to whom the court awarded damages for being abused, abused by a priest. So, thank you again, Jeremy, and again, tune in next week as we declassify more real stories. From Real Investigators, it's PIs Declassified, and I'm Francie Kaler. Thanks so much for listening. You've been listening to PIs Declassified with your host, Francie Kaler. Tune in every Thursday at noon Eastern Time. That's 9 a.m. for you West Coast listeners. P.I.'s Declassified explores stories of deceit, mystery, and detectives unraveling the truth. Every Thursday at noon Eastern, 9 a.m. Pacific Time, here on the Voice America Variety Channel.